There is an unstoppable church. There's, I think there's one more to go, two more to go, before we come, and then it'll be, un- then it'll be stoppable, all right? Okay. Right, so we're going to be reading in Acts 19 this morning. Um, so, the next in our series. We're going to begin reading at verse 21. In actual fact, that this passage starts now after these events. So I thought we need to drop back to verse 17 just to get the context of where we are. Um, especially for those who weren't here last week. But, um, so we're going to start in verse 17 of chapter 19. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That's where we've been this morning, extolling. So it happened there in the early days of the church. That, that's the important bit. The name of Jesus was extolled. His name, his person, his work. Verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, probably in the region of 7 million today depending on whose account you read, commentary you read, of course. It was a bit public, this acknowledging Jesus, and radical. And that's what we find happening here. Very public. In Britain, we do things very quietly, don't we? Sometimes in a corner. And sometimes, and there's nothing wrong with that, but at some stage, our life becomes, in Jesus, becomes public. We have to own that because that's a demonstration of the faith within us. Other people have to know who we are and where we stand. So it's quite radical. Verse 20, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So these public things, people demonstrating the fact that they now belong to Jesus, allowed, allowed the word of the Lord and continue to increase and prevail mightily. What does it mean by the word of the Lord? Well, the very truth that sets people free. <laughs> the very truth that sets people free increased. And there's this, this little intent in the reading there that nothing could stop it now it had started. Yeah? Continuous work going on. Once it starts, nothing can stop it. But that's where we are, the unstoppable church. Verse 21 now, after these events, this is the beginning of our passage for today. Now, after these events, right, and we're introduced to Paul again, and we've been following this man, Paul, who's the ambassador for Jesus, just like we should be, but his was a different role and a different culture at a different time. But he was an ambassador for Jesus, and actually, he was, God chose him to do the foundational work of being an ambassador for Jesus. So he would, he would bring people to faith, he would help plant churches, 
and he would help it spread throughout the world. That mission hasn't really changed for ambassadors. It hasn't changed. We're the unstoppable church, and that's why it needs to go on. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go with Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So you see it's there, isn't it? And this was the commission that Jesus gave in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, uttermost parts of the earth didn't only mean geographically, but it also meant the depth of despair to which people had fallen. You know, when Satan gets a hold on people's lives in our world, God, we were just singing in our song, weren't we? Jesus breaks the chains. He breaks the chains. And at the moment, our world is in the grip. It's very nice here in Britain. I like it in Britain. It's quite comfortable, isn't it? But we're going to be introduced a little later on to a bit of opposition. And that's really the core of the passage where we're going this morning, opposition. So Paul's intent to see Rome. How, what is his, how does he work out this intention? Well, we read there, Paul resolved in the spirit. Whatever we do as Christians, whether we're new Christians or old Christians, our lives should be controlled, moulded, led and guided by the Holy Spirit of God who God has given us. What it means is he didn't do it of his own human volition. It wasn't his mind. He was going out with the mind of God. He was going out with the purpose of God in his heart to bring people to Jesus. So he purposed in the spirit to go where he was. And we know, we've read in the past weeks, you know, how that Paul was stopped from going here and helped going here. This is the work of the spirit of God in people. Do we know that power and presence? Or we just go through life with our own human volition, choosing what we want to go, where we want to live, what church we want to go to? No. Our placing should be what, where God wants us to be and what he wants us to do. Sometimes we just go on our own sweet way. So it's just that point there. Paul is connecting with the Spirit of God. Verse 23, about that time, and this introduces us to the core of the story this morning, about that time there arose no little disturbance. That's a lovely little phrase, isn't it? No little... This wasn't just an argument between neighbours in the street or an argument at work. No little disturbance. It revolved the whole of the community. Wow. Why? And we shall read on. 24, verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together, with the workmen in similar trades, and said, Men, you know from this, this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theatre, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent him and were urging him not to venture into the theatre. These Asiarchs, who were they? Well, they were presidents of the events that went on in the theatre, and these could be violent games and all sorts of things. We don't read that they were believers, but we read that they were friends of Paul's. It's quite an interesting little comment there that Paul had friends in high places. If they were Christians, fine. But if they weren't, it's just, there's just that little note there that he had a purpose in everything he did, led by the Spirit of God. But it's wonderful how God gives us people in high places sometimes and in different places that give us help. Verse 31 again, And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theatre. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand, wanted to make a defence to the crowd. But then they recognised that he was a Jew. For about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis, and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Interesting point. He was pro-Jesus, not anti-everything else. Just a point of wisdom. Verse 38. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no case, cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when they had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. It was a good bit of story there, just of what's going on. And this is just an account of what happened. But what's at the core of this story is a conflict going on. What is this conflict? Well, when we become Christians, we say, oh, this is a nice place to be. Oh, it's nice being a Christian. But God doesn't say that. He says, welcome to the battlefield. Welcome to the battlefield. This is what the story is about. It's about conflict. It's about opposition. It's about me finding it hard in life and not always easy. It's about me facing trials of every kind. This is a very biblical phrase. Trials of every kind. It's about almost walking in a headwind sometimes. That's the sort of world we live in. But we read and we're told that Jesus has overcome the world. But more than that, he's provided 
away. Unstoppable church, what does this really mean? There's a common phrase, unstoppable. We very often read it, they have become unstoppable. There's actually lots and lots of quotes out there about women who've become unstoppable. I don't know where um, Theresa May stands at the moment, but um, maybe she's unstoppable, I don't know. But it's quite a common phrase. But our, our, our phrase this morning is the unstoppable church. And there's an auto-suggestion here, isn't there? You know, that there are things in place... Yeah, she's unstoppable too, April, just in case you're making the comment. <coughs> it's an auto-suggestion that there is conflict and opposition which is against believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and against his church. Now, we have it very comfortable here. And you say, well, I don't see much opposition. I'm just going to read you a little story which is in one of the prayer, uh, prayer books. It's about two Christian street preachers in Bristol who were found guilty on the 28th of February of religiously aggravated harassment. They were fined and ordered to pay costs totaling about £2,000 each. The case stemmed from events on the 6th of July 2016 when a Michael Overt from England and a Michael Stockwell from the USA read from the Bible and preached in the shopping centre. Their forthright criticism of many other religions angered passers-by. A public prosecutor said in court that quoting parts of the King James Bible in the context of modern British society must be considered to be abusive and it is a criminal matter. Pray that religious liberty and freedom of speech in the UK may be protected so that followers of any religion may be able to express their views freely. There will be a retrial in the summer of these two men. Here's two men facing public opposition. Now, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that they did it in the right way and maybe it wasn't right to publicly out, outcry against other religions. But the fact is, they were standing up for Jesus. And, that, and I think it's just indicative of what could happen. But our story today is about opposition. And in, in our culture, in our country, in our nation, and other similar countries to ours, there may be not the sort of conflict we've read about this morning, but... And so I can't really speak about that. I mean, we can read about these men and we feel sorry for them and we pray for them. And we almost say, Lord, don't let it happen to us. But it could happen in her way. The whole point about it is that in this universe is what the Bible calls the spirit of Antichrist. In other words, culture, nations, people are spiritually motivated naturally against the cause of Christ. Because here's a man who lays down his life for the sins of the world that people can actually go free. And they could be given a future without having to do a thing. That's the grace of God. You see, the spirit is, I feel I must do something. I've got to do something to earn this salvation, but not. The salvation which God gives is a free gift of his grace. And it's no other way. But do we carry on like that? Well, yes, but that should be the basis of us wanting to do something. 
And I'm not speaking about what do I do to serve God, because that comes at a later stage. And really my message this morning here, here this morning, is about opposition of a different kind. Opposition of a different kind. The first one is, when I become a Christian, I simply do nothing. Shall we call that passivity? I simply do nothing. No, that's not the issue. I think if we wanted to take a little biblical example, Zacchaeus was a good, um, a good model, if you like. He said, Lord, I've done all this that was wrong, and now I want to put it right with your help. He says, I've taken money from so many people, and now I want to give it back. Jesus actually said to him, salvation has come to your house today because you've demonstrated faith in what I can do for you. It's really a demonstration that you don't sit back and do anything once we come to know Jesus. So I think one of the things that we face by way of opposition in our life is I do nothing. Let everybody else do it, but not me. I just simply accept what you've done for me and I'm saved that's all I really want but actually in fact the Christian gospel is not about that it's not about that at all the second thing is fear I think if I look at my own life fear is one of the things that stops me doing things for Jesus and I think if we are honest that fear is a form of opposition. It works in human lives to stop us doing anything for him. Sometimes it would actually be fear in this way. Oh, I don't feel like going to church this morning because nobody talks to me. Or I don't feel I've got a place there. Or I don't feel right. Or because that person looks at me like that. Fear. It's a form of opposition. We probably don't go up and speak to them about Jesus because of fear. Um, Margaret and I were on a caravan site recently, and um, I met this bloke and talked to him. He was the only other caravan on the site, but he sort of walked past. His name was Keith. He'd come down to to see the passing out of his daughter at Hendon in police. And um, I just sensed in my spirit, that man's a Christian. And later on, Margaret got talking to him. He was a Christian. But this is what he said to me. He said, I met a man, on, a man over from Germany the other day, and he was going around the caravan sites in Britain. He'd walk over to someone at the caravan site and said, can you t- what can you tell me about Jesus? What can you tell me about Jesus? I just thought to myself, here's a man. You know, fear's not stopping him. He's just going up to someone and saying, what do you know about Jesus? Sort of encouraged me a little bit. I thought, well, I must try that in Mumbai. But, uh, but fear is a form of opposition, isn't it? It comes against us. Now, you must understand, I'm not saying this lightly. If someone was pointing a gun at your head, would you still say, I love Jesus, I want to follow him? Would I? That's what it is. 
It's as strong as that. Fear is opposition because it stops what God wants to do in some areas. But the Holy Spirit gives us boldness and he can change that. The next thing that um, can be a form of opposition to us is doubt. Doubt doesn't stop it, it just puts it off. It just delays the process. It delays the progress. You know? Well, is it right? I don't know whether it's right or not. You know? I, shall I? Shan't I? I don't know. Um, doubt was the seed that was sown right at the heart of this world falling from God's grace. Did God say? <laughs> and here we are, 2017, no, sorry, it's more than that, isn't it? 2,005,007 years, 8,000 years since creation. And it did actually delayed what God really wanted to do in this earth. It brought man into a place of irresponsibility before him. And it slowed the, the, this world down and it, it brought in all sorts of things, sadness and sickness and suffering. It's a blight on this earth. And it started by doubt. It just holds up the process. But it's that form of opposition, you know, that we have to face. And the last thing is, I want to say this morning, junk. Satan's ploy is to keep us so full of junk that we're not really hungry for him. So full of junk that we're not really hungry for him. And for me, I wonder what junk was in my life. I can remember as a younger man, um, I think when we first got married, we, we got a television, we, we rented it because that's the thing you did in those days. Telly rental or something like that. I, I just got in the habit of slouching in front of the television while I let Margaret get on with the kids and stuff like that. And I wouldn't get up, out. And um, it was just junk, you know? It was junk, and the Spirit of God convicted me about things like that. Um, and there's lots of other junk, you know, time-wasting and stuff like that. But we're so satisfied with junk in our life. You know, we're so satisfied with good things in our life that we don't get the best things in life. Satan's ploy is to fill our lives with junk. What is your junk? Did you know it's a form of opposition? It's trying to keep us from knowing the best that God wants for us in our lives. It's opposition. It's against us. It's stopping the flow. I was just thinking about those disciples, you know, that Jesus called. And I uh, read about Matthew and, uh, and the others and James and John. And I think in particular one of the disciples, it's, we read this, they left that and followed him. What did they leave? They left a source of income. They left a trade or a career if you like. They left a business. 
They left the bartering that went on between them every day, that sort of community spirit. They left family. They left partnership because they were in partner. One family in particular was in partner with his father. He left that to follow Jesus. I think this, this, this is heart-wrenching. How, how much do, do we love Jesus that much? To actually say, I want to follow you. There's junk in our lives. And Satan's ploy is to keep us so full of junk, you know, that we're not really hungry for him. So if there's one prayer we can pray this morning, God give us a hunger for you, Jesus, Spirit of God. It could start like this, Lord Jesus, and I've, I've prayed this prayer. I, early on in my married life, I said, Lord, help me to love my children. And help me to love my life, my wife, as I should do. I prayed those sorts of prayers when I found it difficult not to. And he helped me to do that. I think it began by, um, the Lord said, well, why don't you fold your pyjamas up in the morning instead of just throwing them in the chair? So I did it ever since. Um, but these are sorts of things, you know, God comes to us. It's now a walk with him. Don't let's have the junk. So how do we get past this? Um, first, when we become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the first, I think the, I'll say this, the first thing we know is that God gives us his Holy Spirit. We read in Ephesians, we won't turn to this, the Holy Spirit is given to us as a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. Now, there's two ways we can look at this. God's saying, the Holy Spirit, there is more to come, and there is more to come. But this morning, I just want to look at it like this, that God has made a deposit in a bank for your life that you can draw on every day. He's given enough in that bank for you to draw on every day of the life and more beyond. It's full it's full of God's goodness. It's full of God's provision for you and for me. And the Holy Spirit is given as a deposit, as a guarantee. That's the first thing. As we draw on that bank and we receive of his fullness, we're sort of baptised into the Holy Spirit and all that he can do. It's not a one-off thing. It goes on and on and on. As much as we want is in that bank for us to draw on. Galatians tells us what some of those things are when it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness, etc. And these are the things that God wants to pull out of our lives and give to us. We need to draw on that bank. So simply doing nothing, as I said earlier, is a form of opposition. It's a matter of pursuing Christ. Pursuing Christ. You see, we may, not, we may not face, here in Herne Bay, we may not face the sort of opposition that was caused by Demetrius. We may, but we may not. But it's not the only form of opposition. Satan's against our lives. He wants you to fall. He doesn't want you to stand. But Christ wants to give it to you all. He wants to give us of himself. And I want to start by, if you've got a Bible, and I think we've got it up on the screen here, turn to 2 Peter 1.
Right, I'm going to read this from off the screen, so if you want to do it, that's fine. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. It's interesting, isn't it? Here's Simon Peter, that great man of God, and he puts the other Christians on an equal standing with himself. All right? By the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ. Next verse. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And it starts here. His divine power has granted to us, or given to us, all things, all, notice the little word, all things that pertain to life and godliness. This is what giving us the Holy Spirit has done for us. Everything we need for life and godliness. Not just life, but for life and godliness. Note that. I need to note it. You need to note it. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We're called to glory and excellence? Is this what a Christian life's all about? Yeah, it is. Yeah. We're reading about opposition this morning, but we're called to glory and excellence in this life. And God has given everything we need. Isn't that amazing? By giving us his Holy Spirit, he's given us everything we need. It's in the bank for you guys. It's in the, well, you know, to draw on it a bit. Write the check. Draw the cash out, whatever. It's there. It's there for us. Verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. My son did a little thing for me when he was young, probably about four or five. God keeps his promises. It's sort of done in graphic art sort of thing. And I've still got it on my bedroom door because it you know, tugs away in here. It just reminds me, God keeps his promises. He does. So that through them, you may, beca- you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped. What amazing words these are. Knowing Jesus, we've escaped. Escaped, yeah? We've escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Okay, we'll leave it there. God has given us everything we need. So my little statement that, you know, when we come simply do nothing is a form of opposition because God has given us everything we need. And that's so amazing. God is so gracious, so kind. He's so good. Oh dear, oh dear. Given us everything we need. So the Holy Spirit he's given us. He's given us everything for life and godliness. And maybe this verse, Philippians 2, verse 12, is a well-known verse. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Now forget the fear and trembling bit just for a minute, because it, in the end, it means, you know, how, how dependent am I upon what God has given me, and do I really realise how important it is? These are just words that describe the respect and the honour to which we owe God for all his goodness. So what does this work out your salvation really mean? To carry out with a view to completion all that God has birthed in us. We will never complete it because Jesus had completed it for us. 
But it what I mean, work it out with a view to completing what God has birthed in us. So it tells us that we, when we become Christians, there is a discipline to it. It's not just a wave your hand in the air affair and say, I go to that church and I do this and I do that. It's my daily following of Jesus Christ. It's a discipline. There are disciplines involved. We can't do it on our own because Jesus said we couldn't do it on our own, but we do it with his help through the power of the Holy Spirit. So when Paul said, the, the Apostle Paul who wrote some of the letters said, when I'm weak, then I am strong. That's not science, is it? That's the spiritual input of a loving God. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. So it's carrying out daily with a view to completing all that God has birthed in us as individuals and as a church. God's at work in us, his wonders to perform. And secondly, with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, we are enabled and charged. I tried to charge an old battery yesterday, and it charged up. That was good. But you know, God charges us. He puts it in. He puts it right in, so that it empowers. We're charged. So... Yeah, where do we stand? Lord, help us. Lord, give us grace. Um, Horatio Spafford, um, some of you will know the story of the, um, the Christian song that was written. I think I'll read, you don't mind me just reading these verse, some of these verses to you. This man wrote a hymn or verse or poetry, whatever you like. And it says, when peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Here's the opposition. Though Satan should buffet and trials come, let this assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, the glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And I won't read any more verses, but some of you will know the story how that Horatio Spafford was a businessman. He lost his business, first business in the Chicago fire. He stayed behind in America to sort some business things out while his wife and four daughters came on a ship to England. And um, whilst the ship was sailing to England, it, was, it hit another Scottish ship and it sank. Before it sank, Horatio Spafford's wife called the four, children, four daughters that he had on the ship and she prayed with them before the ship went down. Lord... If you want to, you can save us, but we're prepared for what's ahead. And when um, this had all happened, Horatio Spafford was wired from England to say what had happened to his wife and to his family. And his wife was picked up in the sea by a man rowing a boat. Wonderful, isn't it? 
Um, and um, she was taken there. And uh, she was bereaved of her four daughters. And he wrote this hymn after that happened. That's something of the power of Christ at work when faced by opposition. It's only one story. There are so many, many stories. There's opposition for that Irish baker, isn't there? In Ireland at the moment. Trials going on about opposition. But it's not the only form of opposition. I'm saying to you, what I'm saying to you this morning, the subtle forms of opposition are sometimes worse than the outward forms of opposition. They are do-nothing, passivity, they are fear, they are doubt, and they are junk. God release us from all these things that we may serve him more and more here. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. Thank you, Father, so much for your grace on our lives. And we, we extol again and we lift up the name of Jesus right at the end of our time together in your word, Lord. Jesus, be glorified. Jesus, be lifted up. Jesus, be extolled above all. Be manifest in our church, in our town, in this area of Herne Bay, we pray. It's only you that can make the difference. Only you can save us from eternal loss and bring us into that place of understanding and eternal purpose. Thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, come up, um, yeah. Yes, um,